Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is the least attractive guy on the podcast. He is the captain. I failed to see your humor, my friend. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, we are drinking Metal by Trillium Brewing Company in beautiful Boston, Massachusetts, garage grade. Four and a half bottle caps out of five. This is a great beer for all you hop heads out there. With mm-hmm. 8.4 ABV, this is a very hoppy and dry imperial double with hints of tangerine, white wine, and all wrapped up with a smooth, dry finish. And Metal was brought to us by these smooth criminals. First up, a big shout out and thank you to Nicole and Adam, who sent some love to us via airmail. I'm friends with them on Untapped, so thank you to Nicole and Adam. And a big shout-out to Kristen from Centerville, Virginia. Next up, we have Nicole. Oh, this is another Nicole from Groton, Connecticut. And a big shout-out to legendary, the legendary Joel and Jimmy. Uh, no shout-out to Jimmy because uh, he didn't want to donate with Joel. So a big shout-out, big like-your-jib to the legendary Joel. Also a shout-out to Wendy in Wasala, Arkansas. I'm not going to read her note, but basically, Captain, she is inviting you on a crime spree, which which is funny, but it's also very much the opposite of what we are doing here. Well, I read the note. It's very, very inappropriate. We also have Rebecca in Cornelius, Oregon. And last but not least, a big thank you to Joanne from Casey, Australia. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge this week. And if you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button full on man i can't thank you guys enough for retweeting reposting uh just spreading the word about the show on social media it means a lot and it does help a lot so thank you so much we like your chip all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
family of a teenager murdered 34 years ago is making a new plea to solve that crime. They are frustrated now with the progress on the case and demanding answers from investigators. 10TV's Chuck Strickler has more on their new push for justice. Well, it is one of the oldest unsolved murders in Franklin County. We talked to the family of Bill Kameens a month ago on the 34th anniversary of his death. And today, Bill's sister continues to post tweets like these, as if Bill were talking from beyond the grave. And she has only one goal, to never let Bill's voice go silent. I never wanted to be a best kept secret for 34 years. I don't have a clue then or now. Kathleen Comines speaking for her brother Bill, a battle she says is going nowhere. He's not just a box of files sitting on a shelf gathering dust. You know, he had a future. He's 14 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. Somebody decided to end it. Bill Comines was found just down the street from his house on January 7, 1980. Years have passed, the case has grown cold, and she feels even today her family has been left out in the cold. It's frustrating trying to get answers, trying to get somebody to return phone calls, return emails, to get some kind of information. Here's one to the Franklin County Sheriff's Department. It says, please don't give up on me now. The Kameens family says there were certain pieces of evidence found here at the murder scene. A knife, a beer bottle, and what could be the most significant, Bill's scarf that was used to strangle him. Now a body fluid was found on that scarf, and the family says it was supposed to be tested for DNA last year, but they are still waiting for answers. There's got to be somebody that can do something. There's no reason to stop. There's always going to be some hope. And she will continue to pressure and publicize her plight in whatever way she can as the battle for answers goes on to find Bill's killer. If my murder has tormented you for decades and deep down you know what happened to me, share. Now Franklin County Sheriff Zach Scott tells me that the DNA sample in question is so small that if they use it once to test, it may be gone forever. And that's why they are taking extra time to review it. He says his detectives will continue to work the case. Kathleen says an email from a detective promises a follow-up meeting with the family. She says she hopes that happens. In the meantime, these tweets, she says, will continue. On the evening of January 7, 1980, 14-year-old Bill Comines is helping his father work on the family car. He went two doors down to get his sister to walk home from a birthday party. This is Bill's little sister, Kathleen, who is only nine years old. However, the party was not over. Kathleen does not want to come home yet and ask Bill to come back and get her later. Right, so a good, like a good older brother, he's going to come home. And then he's going to tell his parents, hey, I'll go back and get her later. No big deal. And I think the way that this thing went down, Captain, is that Bill's father, Robert, and his mother, they the three of them were supposed to go to the mall that evening while mm -hmm. Kathleen was at this birthday party. Now, they didn't go to the mall because the family car was not running properly. Uh, and at this discovery, his father, Robert, and Bill decide that they're going to stay in the garage and work on the car. Mm -hmm. Now... Throughout this night, Bill will be helping his father, and he even brings his father a cup of coffee. Um, his two brothers, he has two older brothers, they are at home at this time along with their mother. All are presumably in the house. 
Now, after bringing his father a, co- a cup of coffee for the second time, Bill goes out to the goes out of the garage and goes to the front porch, front yard area of the property. Well, let's talk a little bit about this neighborhood. I mean, so this is Columbus, Ohio, so we're pretty familiar with this. But those of you that aren't, uh, if you've ever seen the show The Wonder Years, mm-hmm. um, now that show was set back in time a little bit, but similar uh, neighborhood. Yeah, I actually lived in this neighborhood at, at one one time for about a year or so. And you've been out there to visit me during this time. And it's a small neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to describe it to everyone, the, the best way I would describe it is there's very few what I would call like straight roads. It's a lot of winding roads through this neighborhood and all the houses are, they're smaller homes um, and probably were built in the sixties and late sixties, I would guess. Um, But that gives you a picture of this neighborhood, small homes, windy roads. The homes are pretty close together. Yeah. And when I was first looking into this case, I I thought there would probably be some confusion because you know, this happened on a Monday, Mm -hmm. but there was a birthday party. Yeah, well, so what's up with that? Yeah, it's a strange evening to have a birthday party in my mind. But uh, take note of this, people. I'm, I'm being honest, shooting from the hip here, because mm-hmm. there are some parents out there that are like, you know what? My kid was born on January 7th. We have the party on January 7th. You know, what? take into consideration all your guests and do this thing on the weekend, please. Yeah, I, I don't know if that happens as much anymore. But OK, so it's it's Monday night working on the car. Last time they see Bill is he delivers this cup of coffee and they're probably trying to settle in for the night mm-hmm. and you know, they have work and school the next day. So uh, where's Bill? Well, exactly. Because Robert is done. Bill's father, Robert is done working on the car at some point. He comes inside. He talks to his wife. He expects to see Bill inside the house. Bill's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, she says the obvious thing. Oh, I thought he was out in the garage with you. No, he must've went back to collect Kathleen from this birthday party. Right. They go down to the birthday party. Kathleen's there. Bill is nowhere to be found. They call this into the local police department. Now we said this was, we said this is Columbus, Ohio, but this is outside of 270. So 270 is the outer belt freeway that goes around Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. This is what would be called the West side. Um, And it's typical back in these days that a small police department called new Rome uh, might have actually been the police officers that would have responded to this call. Right. So we have a 14 year old boy missing and it's believed his father would later report that they believed that bill was probably last seen about 20 minutes or so before they realized he was not at the house. Right. So not long after they report him missing, the police are there. They're going to surveillance the whole area for, uh, I, I believe 9:45 or so. Yeah, around 9:45 the police are on the scene looking through the neighborhood. Billy's father and a neighbor and Billy's two brothers would end up finding Bill near train tracks at the end of a dead end street. Uh Bill is lying face down in a snowy ditch. Mm-hmm. His winter scarf is knotted tightly around his neck and he is unconscious. Uh this spot, strange enough captain is only about 2 blocks away from the family's home. And as we said, this is near train tracks. So he's lying face down amongst, you know, trash, beer bottles, Mm -hmm. rusty car parts, that sort of thing. Uh, Bill's brother, Mike, using a pocket knife, cuts the scarf from Bill's neck. Uh, Bill's father and older brother, Bob, performed CPR on the young man until the ambulance arrived. Bill was transported to a nearby hospital. Uh, The hospital, this is called Doctors West. 
Uh, it's maybe just two or three miles away, so a very quick drive to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, at the hospital, Bill is pronounced dead. Uh, this would be around 11 p.m. at night. The cause of death was listed as strangulation. Law enforcement says other than the strangulation, there were no other signs of violence or a struggle, nor was Bill robbed. Upon arriving at the hospital, law enforcement was working with two theories. Either Bill was murdered or this was some kind of suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't until April 22nd that they really... I don't even think they even said suicide, too. I mean, it wasn't at some point they thought... It was possibly an accident. Yes, you're exactly right. But but upon arriving at the hospital, these are the two theories that they're working with. Uh, it wasn't until April 22nd that they released the coroner's report. The coroner ruled the, the death a homicide. Uh, the cause of death was actually, you know, I said strangulation earlier, but the cause of d- death was actually cardiac arrest due to compression of the neck by ligature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what does that mean? Okay, so basically he has a heart attack because there's extreme trauma to the body. You know, mm-hmm. you're cutting off the airway. He's unable to breathe. And this this brought upon this heart attack that ultimately killed him. Right, but that's probably by more force than if he accidentally, you know, tightened the scarf around his neck too tight. Mm-hmm. It would probably because, you know, a lot more force on the neck might cause that heart attack as Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I, but I also want to touch upon something real quick here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we said that this, he went missing and was found unconscious on in January of 1980. It wasn't until April, late April of 1980, mm-hmm. that the coroner's report was released. Now, I've heard a lot of people and read a lot of people stating that, you know, oh, it's the 1980s. They didn't really know what they were doing back then. And this was the cause for the delay of this coroner's report. I actually don't believe that to be the case at all. I think that they probably knew very quickly within days of him arriving at the hospital of what was the manner of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that what actually happened here, Captain, was there might may, may have been a dispute between the sheriff's department and the coroner as to the cause of death. Is there any other findings that the coroner finds? Yes. Uh, a toxicology report shows Valium in Bill Comeen's blood. Mm. But other than that, there are no signs of personal drug use by the 14-year-old. Now, law enforcement are not sure how Bill got the volume or why it was in his system. The coroner uh, publicly declares the death a very bizarre case, mm-hmm. and we're going to see why very quickly. Because it was quickly reported after his death, after the young man's death, that on two previous occasions, uh, the first being in September and then again in October of 1979, Bill was attacked by two unknown males, and he was choked on both of these occasions. Bill Comings, as we said, he's 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And I want to paint a picture of Bill for you. Now, 14 sounds very young. I've seen pictures of Bill, and Bill is six foot tall, about 175 pounds. Uh, He's a freshman at Westland High School. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, from all accounts, he's uh, the, the teachers say he's a perfect student. His parents say he's a perfect child. Um, he played the piano. He was in the school choir. He's a newspaper boy. Yeah, he he had a newspaper route for some time. Now, I do want to touch upon this uh, six foot tall, 175 pounds because I've seen pictures of Bill. Mm-hmm. He does not look 14 years old to me. He he looks seven, 17 or 18. He yeah. looks almost like a grown man. You know, when you picture a freshman in high school, 
you you typically don't think to see somebody six foot tall, 175 pounds. So he's a he's a tall, big kid. Let's talk about these attacks that took place in September and October of 1979. Now, Bill received some threatening notes at school. It's reported that he received three to four notes that were found in his locker. Mm. These were given to detectives eventually. Uh, some of these were typed, some were written, and some were cut from pieces of magazines. Now, Bill's best friend and his girlfriend also received a note in their lockers. These notes were typed in red ink, one saying that blood will spill, um, another saying it's, it, Bill has three months left. So P.S. Make the best of it. The the note that said that Bill had three months left is the note that was delivered to his girlfriend's locker. Well, it seems like somebody has way too much time on their hands. The other thing, Captain, there is one note that was found at Westland High School after Mm -hmm. Bill's death that says, You are next, signed with a red S. This is according to Bill Comeen's parents, but I also want to state that the deputy— Wait, wait, hold on a second. So there was another note that was delivered after his death that says you are next. We don't know if it was delivered after his death. It was found at the high school after his death. Mm. Now, the tricky thing here is. So it wasn't delivered to anybody. That's what I'm trying to get at. um, Here's where there's a big problem. Mm. Uh, There's little details about this note. And that is because we have Bill Comeen's parents saying that this, this note was found after his death at Westland High School. We have the sheriff's deputies who would not discuss this item, nor would they confirm even having found this. Right. So we don't even know if it exists. So it's yes, it's in big, big time dispute here, whether this this thing was real or not. Play the base big time. So I want to talk about these assaults. The first took place on a Wednesday. This is September 5th, 1979 at approximately 830 p.m. Bill was on his way home from a friend's house. He decides to cut through the woods behind an elementary school. Mm -hmm. Bill is on his bike. He's riding his bike. He's on a trail that's about 50 yards behind the school when he is knocked off of his bike by what he would say is two men that were unknown to him. Um, They approached him from behind. Once they attacked him, they tie a plastic garbage bag over Bill's head and wrap a bicycle inner tube around his neck. Bill almost blacks out from this attack, but eventually he starts to break free before he can black out. When he, when this happens, these two dudes that attacked him in the woods took off. When Bill gets home, he has obvious signs of bruising. Uh, the police are called regarding the attack. The attackers reported, but the, the police go to the scene. They find Bill's bike. Uh, they find the inner tube and they find the bag that was placed over Bill's head. They found a note there saying he was warned. Uh, Bill was unable to describe the two men that assaulted him. Okay, so normally you could be able to tell right away uh, the individuals were black or white. Mm-hmm. So he's not able to say that. I couldn't find any reports where they they say you know these are white guys, these are African American guys. Um, really there's no description of these people at all as far as public records go. Well, normally too, it's like you might not be able to tell if the guy is 16, you know, the person that attacked you, if they were 16 year old or if they're, but you can normally, you know, break it down and go, well, they're in their twenties or thirties. That's one of the frustrating, one of the many frustrating things regarding this case. And, and what if Bill knew and just was afraid to actually state anything? There's a lot of speculation regarding that. 
Let's talk about the attack that took place on Monday, October 22nd, 1979. This is the second assault, and you could you could possibly call this the attempted murder of Bill Comines. This takes place at approximately 6.30 p.m. Uh, Bill is out collecting money. Uh, like the captain said, he had a newspaper route, mm-hmm. and he was going door-to-door to his different customers, and he's collecting money. Now, he's not on his bike this evening. He's on foot. Um, he says that at some point while he's out collecting money, two men who were driving an older model vehicle, uh, he described this as aqua or tur- turquoise in color. Um, two men jumped out of a car and they jumped him from behind. Mm. They attack him and then tie a rope around his neck and throw him into some bushes. Billy loses consciousness and he blacked out for about five to six hours. Once he regains consciousness, Bill walks home and he arrives around 1230 or 1 a.m. that morning. Bill has rope burns on his neck. He has a gash on his face and broken blood vessels on his face as well. To You know, obvious signs that this guy was choked and knocked mm-hmm. out. Uh, Bill files a police report and describes the assailants as two white guys in their late teens or early 20s. He's also taken to the uh, hospital at this time where his injuries are noted. This was probably part of the police report. Um, and so he's two, he's attacked twice. Both times the police investigate, a report is filed. And at least one of these occasions, he seeks medical attention because of the attack. Bill would ultimately end up quitting his paper route. I understand why. Um, and just four days after filing the report, Bill is asked to take a polygraph test. Now, he has to take this test. This is at the BCI office, the Ohio BCI office, which is in London, Ohio. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions about these two attacks. The The sheriff's department, um, and let's, let's kind of clear this up a little bit because I said earlier the new Rome police department would more than likely be the ones responding to the missing report of bill from January of 1980 Mm -hmm. new Rome is a tiny little tiny little area and they only had part-time police officers back then it's bigger than parts unknown but it is tiny yeah and the best way to describe these police officers picture uh boy scouts in cop cars is pretty much the way i would describe the new new rome police department they're mm-hmm. part-time they really only issue traffic tickets they don't really <laughs> investigate any type of crime um later and i don't there, know there's that, probably a new rome cop listening right now mad as hell well there there can't be because new rome no longer exists at some point it was absorbed by prairie township because me there there you go um but if they had any type of major crime or an assault or anything like this this is within franklin county ohio so eventually the sheriff's department would be called in to investigate these different things not the boy scouts that were issuing traffic tickets on west broad street yeah, I'm sure I got a ticket from them before. Yeah, I I definitely received one. And one thing I remember is they they told me I had to pay in cash in person. Uh, <laughs> and my ticket was for not having uh, being able to provide proof of insurance. I was pulled over for who knows what, but that ends up being the ticket. I didn't have my insurance card on me at the date that I was pulled over. Now in Columbus and in most cities. You can just go to the court and prove that you had insurance at the time you were pulled over mm-hmm. and there's then they take away the ticket. 
My situation with New Rome was I showed up. I'm like, look, I, here's my proof of insurance. They're like, we don't care that you have insurance. You were pulled over for not having proof of it. You need to pay that ticket and pay it in cash. I can't remember what I paid, but here's what I do remember. Part of the reason why New Rome no longer exists mm-hmm. is they were writing all these tickets telling people they had to pay in cash. And then they, they, the government doesn't believe that New Rome was reporting all of these tickets being paid or even issued, <laughs> that they're basically pocketing the money. So many, well, many, got you. yeah, many, many good reasons why New Rome is no longer around. But let's, let's go through this real quick, Captain. So we have a, a dead 14-year-old boy, Bill Comings. Mm-hmm. He's found face down in a snowy ditch. Uh, his scarf is t- tied tightly around his neck. Death by strangulation. Exactly. And then we also find out that on two previous occasions, this same young man has been attacked by what he describes as two men uh, who attack him and both times trying to choke him to death. Yeah, first time trying to put a bag over his head and then tie the bag you know, tight. And with the other time, uh, trying to strangle him with a rope. Where he blacks out f- for five to six hours. Yeah. Did they report him missing that day? There's So here, here's a big problem with this case. His parents are no longer around. Um, they, they both passed away, lived to be, you know, an old age. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister and brother are still around. Uh, he had two brothers. I don't know about his oldest brother, but his sister and brother to this day are very active in the case, keeping this case alive, searching for answers. Good for them. Exactly. Um, but however, his, they were young at this time. His sister was only nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, his brother was a few years older than him. They are a little... They're a little fuzzy about the details of some of these things. And there's also been a lot of people that have kind of come out of the woodwork saying, well, if my son was attacked on two separate occasions, I would have moved. I would have mortgaged my home and, sure. and moved to another neighborhood. And Sure, you would have. Okay, let's let's not fault these parents. I don't find any fault in what the parents did or did not do. No. Okay, let's be clear about this. The two times that he was attacked, both times it was reported to the police. That's what you're supposed to do. At least one of those occasions, Bill received medical attention, if not on both occasions. Right. Um, so I don't know what more you expect of parents to do. You you report these things to the police, and and then you know you hope that the police are out doing their job. The oh pro- yeah. The problem could've... with the police is the the victim is unable to describe these guys. Uh, the best description that they get out of two attacks is well, that it was an right. aqua turquoise car uh, with some white dudes that may have been in their late teens or early 20s. Yeah, but it kind of sounds like you're faulting Bill. I mean, I, again, I think there's probably some reason that he didn't want to come forward with some information. But, yeah, there's ways to toughen up your kids, too. I mean, you could you could have sent Bill to the Cobra Kai dojo. Yeah, but, but it's also, I, I'm not faulting Bill. What I'm saying is there's good chance he may not have, he couldn't provide a better description because he didn't know who these guys were. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was attacked. Uh, you've talked about on this show several times what happens when you're knocked out. You might not remember things that happen leading up to being knocked out. I don't know what happens when somebody's choked out or strangled like that to the point of lose, losing consciousness that they might might not be clear about what happened to them. Um 
it's pretty easy then when you come to to be pulling the inner tube off of your neck and the bag off of your head mm-hmm. and realize that that's how you were choked or strangled. There is so much more to get into in this case just heating up. We'll get right back to this right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off 
IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Full on, mates. Full on. Cheers, mates. Okay. So let's jump right back into this, Captain, because this thing is... This thing's pretty big, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's take into account that the sheriff's department, they're currently investigating that Bill has been attacked on two separate occasions. This is before he's found murdered or found dead at the end of that dead end street. They were also investigating the letters that these notes that Bill received at, at school. They were investigating all this before he's found dead at the, the end of that street. Now, after his death, The Franklin County Sheriff's Department, the detectives, they're on record stating, quote, that we are interviewing persons close to Bill. And the reason being is at this time, they're still struggling to determine if they were dealing with a homicide or a potential suicide. So for the first part of their investigation, they interviewed just about, if not everyone, that would have known Bill. Uh, They interviewed his family, his friends, and school officials. And they they said, quote, Uh, Persons interviewed describe Bill as a perfect student, a perfect child, a perfect citizen. So I really firmly believe that they could come up with no apparent reason for his death whatsoever. Um, Even though they couldn't decide if this is a homicide or suicide, there's no reason for this 14-year-old boy to be dead. And I believe that that is why that they waited so long to have the coroner release his report, ultimately ruling the situation a homicide. More evidence is going to come in backing the idea that this is a homicide and not a suicide because his neighbors are going to start getting threatening letters. This is a crazy thing, Captain, because on July 21st of 1980, 
neighbors on Maple Drive start receiving threatening letters or notes. Mm-hmm. Um, we say Maple Drive. This is the same street that Bill and his family lived on. It's reported that 13 to possibly 19 notes of these threatening letters or notes were received uh, by eight different families, all very near the Comines home. Some families received identical notes on the same day. Some notes were mailed. Some were delivered in person at night. Uh, notes were found on porches and on cars. So up until September of 1980, these notes were mailed. But the first note that was delivered in person at night was discovered on September 9th, 1980. Police were looking at the handwriting on these notes. The handwriting is described in two ways, two very different ways. Uh, one being crudely printed And there's also notes that are neatly penciled on pieces of cutout envelopes. Uh, These notes are submitted for analysis, which reveals that the letters were all written by the same person, even though some crudely and some neatly. Right. But were these letters connected to the original letters? Um, Let's go through that, because there is some wording of these notes that would make you believe that they could be connected. And keep in mind, he's re- Bill Comings is receiving these threatening letters, and then he's killed. Uh, most of these letters are brief. Uh, they're simply just three or four words on a lot of the notes. The messages that were reported in the newspaper at the time were as follows. Uh, Parents should guard their children carefully. This one is signed X. The next note is time is short. Now, I want to note here that uh, seven different girls and women in the neighborhood which the ages range from seven all the way up to 50 received these letters addressed to their name. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other notes said all have been warned. Uh, one said death in October. One said you are next. And the other one said it's time. This one was left the night before Halloween. This of course, you know, just some of the notes received because they didn't report all of them to the newspapers uh, police say that they did believe that the letter writer could possibly be the the killer of Bill Comings. On November 2nd, law enforcement took the notes to Syracuse for a psychological profile of the letter writer. Here's where things... Well, that's kind of difficult, too, when the, the letters are so short. Yeah. Well, here's the difficult thing, too, mm-hmm. because in December of 1980, they arrest somebody for writing these letters. A 54-year-old woman who lives on Maple Drive was arrested for writing the threatening letters. She wrote all of them. (laughs) So how did they catch this crazy old bat? Well, remember, they did the psychological profile. And they've not said this in the papers, but here's what I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe that what they came up with in the psychological profile is that probably one of the persons that have received letters or received the notes themselves Mm -hmm. was the author of all of these notes. So what they end up doing is they go back and everybody that received a note, they ask them to submit a handwriting sample so they can compare it to the notes found. Mm, Clever. So 54 year old, this is uh, Aileen Tope. Uh, She decides she's not going to submit a handwriting sample to the police. So they get a search warrant and they go to where she works and they take items from her desk, basically taking, you know, collecting handwriting samples on their own Mm -hmm. without her help. They determine that she wrote these letters based off of items that they found in her desk. And the letters probably smelled like cats. (laughs) Well, Aileen Tope was a state employee. 
She worked for the Ohio Department of Taxation. She lived with her husband, who was a retired mail carrier. Mm-hmm. This is Willard Tope, 56 He years probably old. had him deliver the letters. They had four adult children at this time when she's arrested. Uh, one daughter and three sons, ranging in age from 22 to 30. I believe the daughter was the youngest of their children. They lived in their house on Maple Drive for seven years. They knew the Comines. Um, actually, Mrs. Comine describes Aileen Tope as a friend. Um, and So then why is she writing these these letters because she's not really a friend i'm guessing this is this is after the fact that once it's discovered that she was the writer the mother states bill comey's mom states you know she was once a friend now she's somebody i don't even want to see ever again mm-hmm. uh they live smell the way that the way that bill's sister kathleen describes the neighborhood um the topes would have lived not directly across the street from them, but across the street in a house over. Right. So they lived very close to the Comines. A little more background on Aileen Tope. Um, she, she, before she wrote the letters, before the letters started showing up, this is back in 1973 and 74. She had several nervous breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, after, after being caught as the letter writer, she was diagnosed as having dual personalities. She spent three weeks in a hospital. And then she got all better. Well, she was, or her family was, one of the first people to receive these threatening notes. They took The notes were delivered between July 21st and October 31st of 1980. She's caught for this in December of 1980. Mm-hmm. So she even participated in the investigation in the sense that she spoke with police on several occasions, and she also talked to the newspapers uh, when when the people in the neighborhood were receiving these notes. She told the Columbus Dispatch that this is some kind of sick joke or somebody is ready to go off the deep end. That's what she's quoted as in the paper. She told the police she was receiving threatening phone calls and prowlers were lurking around her home at night and attempted break-ins to their home. Well, I wonder if maybe with the mental issues she was dealing with, if this, uh, because Bill was murdered, maybe this triggered something inside her. And and again, maybe she was friends with the family and that that was a bigger trigger. And therefore, then she became mentally unhinged because of this murder. So, but it's sad nonetheless. Now, law enforcement would end up proving that all the phone calls to police, uh, the the comments or the suspected prowlers or attempted break-ins to their home, mm-hmm. they were all false claims. All right. So what does she get charged with? Well, she gets charged with writing the threatening letters. This, I guess, is a misdemeanor. And she pleads no contest to mm-hmm. this and receives a fine of $50. Um, she fainted during the court proceedings. And like, like <laughs> just like Suge Knight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he has a, he has a problem going to court. Um, here's the weird thing, though, Captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, in I as if it's not weird yeah, enough, it can't get much weirder. So I've read newspaper articles that came out in December of 1980, and her husband is interviewed with her uh, regarding her arrest. Mm-hmm. He seems to be in her court. Uh, he has her back. Um, like we said, she probably has some mental issues going on. The thing is though, she offers no explanation as to why she wrote any of these letters. Eventually law enforcement would say that she did not write the letters that Bill Comines received before his death. 
and stated that she is not a suspect in Bill Comey's murder. The letters that were received were received at people's houses or on the street. Um, the, the letters that Bill received were at the school. Mm-hmm. In September of 1981, so over a year and a half goes by, and after announcing the menacing letter writer was not a suspect uh, in what the coroner called a very bizarre case, and also Eileen Tope was not considered a suspect in the threatening letters Bill had received before his death, the police still had named no suspects, couldn't find a motive for the murder of Bill Comings. But now, in 1981, they're re-examining the case and talking to the press once again. This time advance, there's a there's a theory that starts to come out a year and a half after the death of Bill Comings. Okay. And this is that he possibly died of an accidental suicide by way of autoerotic asphyxiation law enforcement. Okay. Law enforcement claims that the investigation is ongoing at this time. However, uh, we have detectives detectives stating publicly that they don't believe that bill Comings was murdered. The coroner at this time still has not changed his ruling of homicide. The deputy coroner claims the ruling of homicide was given to keep the case open that law enforcement were, they were having trouble believing the stories uh, regarding the first two attacks on Bill Comings. And they are now telling the newspapers that Bill Comings uh, responses to the lie detector test that they asked him to take before his death showed signs of quote, significant attempt to deceive. Okay. A couple things going on here. First of all, autoerotic asphyxiation, right? Mm-hmm. So this is where either during sex, I guess, or during self sex. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about this. Uh, but you'd be choking yourself and be, and it would help, uh, you know, you climax. Okay. Right. So that's what they're stating. They believe it's a possibility that he was choking himself with his scarf um, and then beaten off uh, by the train tracks. All right. Well, let's get into this is the time where we have to get into all this speculation. Because it's obvious that law enforcement, they don't seem to have a good idea, I think, on whether he's murdered or whether this was an accidental death. Well, it's pretty simple. Was his pants found down around his ankles or or was his pants on? I'm going to go off of what Bob has said. Bob is uh, Bill's older brother. He was one of the people that found Bill face down in that ditch that night. He states that as far as his memory goes, that Bill's clothing didn't seem abnormal. Um, and to furthermore, the family's belief that he was murdered is okay. So this is a cold night. There was snow on the ground. Bill's wearing a winter coat. He's wearing pants, long pants. He's wearing big, thick gloves and a scarf, a scarf, his own scarf that is tied tightly around his neck that probably caused this cardiac arrest that he had. They, there's no sign of there's no sign of a struggle, but there's also no sign of what you were just talking about the, your self sex <laughs> that you were t- just discussing. Um, Sorry, so that's inappropriate. But yes, uh, Bill, you know Bob. These are Bob's statements many years later. Mm-hmm. One sad, one of the saddest things about this is I've, I've read Bob's stories and um, you know just the fact that he and his father basically took turns performing CPR on bill, trying to revive him. Um, Bob states that the bill had vomited because of the, the strangulation. 
and that for many, many years, Bob could still taste that in his own mouth uh, from having performed the, the CPR. But there's all kinds, there's so much things, there's so many things to discuss here. Okay, let's... Well, I think this whole idea of this autoerotic asphyxiation theory is, to me, is just irresponsible. Well, and and one thing that, that would have your back on that is that a lot of people argue that the size of the gloves he wore would have been, that you wouldn't have been able to tie your shoelaces with these big, thick gloves on, that he wouldn't have been able to tie this scarf around his own neck. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many questions about this case, and this is one of these fascinating cases that you dive into, and you could go a million different directions with it. Um, the first, the first question I have is there's, there's some question as to when Bill still in life started receiving these threatening letters, these threatening notes. Was it before the first time he was attacked or was it after the first time he was attacked? Um, he was attacked on September 5th of 1979. And the reason why I bring that up, because that's a Wednesday, that would have been the Wednesday after Labor Day. Now, back in the day, and you'll remember this, and I know that school school years have changed throughout the years, that a lot of kids start school early August or mid-August nowadays. But back when we were kids, we would typically start school the week before Labor Day. And I used to love that because they would kind of ease you into the school year because you would typically start on that Wednesday before Labor Day. Mm-hmm. So you would go to school for three days. You would have a three-day weekend. You would go back to school for four days before you went to your first full week of school, which is week three. So I have to believe, I'm just going off of numbers here, that Bill probably started receiving these threatening letters after the first attack. And I only say that because I believe that having found them in his locker and his friends finding them in their lockers, that these letters would have been delivered by somebody that had access to that school. This would be an upperclassman or a teacher, somebody already in the school. Now, leading up to the first attack, Bill would have only been in school for, what, five days? Five school days before the first attack? Right. Um, and I do have confirmation that that, that school year is correct. Uh, his sister would say years later, when questioned about the whole incident, that back then we started school the week before Labor Day. So he wouldn't have been in school very long before before being attacked. Right, which makes some sense because, you know, people get back from summer break and then they're kind of rowdy. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that makes sense. And I, and I believe, you know, if he was murdered, the, the, per, the people that they're looking for, the suspects are going to be uh, members of that high school. Mm-hmm. There were some reports uh, that Bill might have been bullied by some upperclassmen. Now, no one could give really specific incidents of him being attacked or being picked on at school other than there were a couple people that said on more than one occasion during choir practice, you know, mm-hmm. while he's at choir, there were several upperclassmen that seemed to go to the choir room and kind of stare down some of the kids in the choir yeah, because uh, Bill being one of them. Right, because when you go to high school, you normally have like freshman English class. Well, who's in freshman English class? Freshman, right? Mm-hmm. You have sophomore math class or whatever. There's those classes that have an overlap. So choir being one or like jazz band 
or like even gym class sometimes would have an overlap. Right. So this would give Bill the opportunity to be in contact with some of these upperclassmen. You're exactly right. Okay. So let's talk about these notes and let's talk about the things going on at school. Um, regarding the notes that he received before his death, these are items that are being held somewhere in an evidence locker in the uh, Franklin County Sheriff's Department. These are, these are notes that his remaining family members are a little unclear of, and they're not actually certain that they've seen these notes. So Kathleen and Bob, who are active in this investigation, are not really able to clue us in as to what these notes are. We have some vague descriptions of these notes, but like I said, some of them were written, some were typed, and some were letters and words cut out of magazines and newspapers. Uh, the Sheriff's Department does not comment on these letters other than stating that they were investigating if Bill was the actual author of these letters. Mm -hmm. And I say that because remember the polygraph test that they gave Bill, mm -hmm. that they requested of him? Once they saw signs that he might have been deceptive during those polygraph tests, that's probably why they're starting to look at him being a possible author of these notes. One big question I have regarding those notes are which ones were written, which ones were typed, and which ones were uh, cut out of magazines and received by whom? Mm -hmm. You know, if all the handwritten letters and notes were received by Bill and the typed ones and the ones that are cut out in newspapers and magazines were received by his best friend and his girlfriend, I would really wonder if Bill actually authored those those notes. Yeah, because one of the theories that you know gets me is you know as far as the the autoerotic asphyxiation theory doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But a possible like you know maybe it was a suicide mm -hmm. in the sense of well you know whatever's going on in my head I'm going to go take a walk and I got this scarf and if I tie it really tight mm -hmm. and cut off my airway. That uh, and I throw these gloves on. That once it gets difficult to breathe, that maybe I won't be able to take off the scarf. Mm -hmm. That that would be my idea. And so, but then what if? Because like what the coroner said is, well, it was really the heart attack because of the. So what if he tied the scarf super tight? He can't breathe. He has these gloves on before it gets to the point where he would probably struggle to save himself you know, he, he passes out. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is a possibility. And like you said, if he's writing these letters, then maybe he's just writing these letters or talking about these attacks that maybe never happen as a way to get attention. Yeah. Or to cover up some kind of thing that he was doing on his own. Mm -hmm. I actually, I don't think, but don't, what would that thing be? I mean, you're just tossing that out as a overall blanket idea. Well, I'll get into that in a, a bit here because I don't think that suicide is the right word for any of this. I think that what we're dealing with here is either a homicide or an accidental death, um, mm -hmm. not a suicide. So there is one report that one of the teachers at Bill's high school, at Westland High School, told law enforcement that at one point Bill had asked that teacher how to pass out, how to make yourself pass out. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find, I don't know how credible this is. Um, this is something that I found on a website somewhere. I didn't find it in a newspaper. I couldn't find any other reports of this actually being a real thing. 
Okay. But what I'm getting at here is that possibly could have happened. He could have asked somebody that or could have had these weird conversations maybe with some of his friends. Now, Kathleen and Bob, they don't believe that a good number of his friends were interviewed about this. You know, we have the law enforcement stating that, you know, we talked to everybody that knew Bill. Um, and they say that a lot of his friends weren't spoken to by the police. I don't know what information they could offer. Um, but here's, here's where I have a problem with this being a homicide. The first thing is that the parents state that Bill would have not left the home without telling them where he was going. And I believe this. I believe this because everybody that's been in the newspaper, anybody that knew Bill has always said he was extremely close with his family and his parents. And he was also uh, a very responsible kid. You know, we talked about him being a good student and talking about him having a paper route. Uh, So I believe this. So their statement to the sheriff's department is this has to be a murder because he would not have committed suicide. And Bill would have had to have been abducted from either their front porch or from their front yard because he wouldn't have left on his own. Right. But there's a few problems I have with this. The one being that, that, these homes are close together. They're small homes. They're small lots. Uh, this this area, when I lived there 15 years ago, was a very quiet area at 9 o'clock at night, especially during the week. Mm-hmm. If Bill was abducted, you would think that somebody would have heard something, that there might have been a struggle. Bill's six foot tall, 175 pounds. Uh, I, I feel his father's in the garage with the door open, working on the car. Mm-hmm. It almost seems to me like if he was abducted, all Bill would have had to do, especially after having been you know, in two situations like this before, already being in fear, all he would have had to do was shout out or yell or scream, and his father would have heard him, or a neighbor would have heard him. So I have a problem with the family's thought that he was abducted and then later found strangled to death. And I'm going back to the first two Uh, attacks as part of this problem. One being the night that he was coming home from his friend's house where he was attacked in the woods and somebody places a bag over his head in an inner tube around his neck to choke him out. I have a problem with the inner tube. That seems like a strange thing for an attacker to bring to an area in the woods, maybe lying there waiting for somebody. I mean, Mm -hmm. how would you know that the, the letters to me, if Bill's receiving threatening letters, it almost seems like Bill is targeted. Maybe he was targeted after this first attack. I don't know. But having the inner tube there seems like a strange thing. It doesn't seem like a strange thing to me with somebody being on a bike. Bill might have had an inner tube. You know, a lot of people will bring an inner tube with them in case they get a flat tire out somewhere. They can change the tire themselves and ride home. Well, right. So you're saying that possibly he's playing like the blackout game. Yes, or something of that nature, that, that he was getting a, some kind of high or or maybe this was something taught to him by a friend. This is pretty common, actually. I, I'd say probably every generation that people go through this period of, you know, the the blackout game or the mm-hmm. feigning game, speed dreaming, it, there's a bunch of different names for it. So let's go back to the first attack. I've looked at where that school and the woods behind the school are located. Mm-hmm. And I know where his friend's house was, and I know where his home was. The woods was actually out of his way. He did not need to go through the woods to get home, Mm -hmm. first of all. Second of all, 
it was not a shorter route. You know, like kids often would take shorter routes, cut through people's yards and cut through the woods. I get that. Yeah, but it would have been faster for him to take the the roads from his friend's home to his house. It was completely out of the way. Yeah, but maybe he just preferred it. I get that. I get that, but it seems strange. And then second of all, we have the second attack. He's out on his own and he's unaccounted for for five to six hours. Mm -hmm. That seems strange to me, too. I, I have so many so many issues with with this case. Claiming that you were attacked while you're collecting money for your paper route might give you an excuse not to have a paper route anymore. And on none of these occasions was he robbed. And on the two occasions that he comes home from these attacks, there's nothing on his clothes to indicate any type of struggle other than the bruising on his neck and that this this poor kid was had passed out or was unconscious for some period of time. Right, but how do you explain these marks? Could He could have choked himself. He could have blacked out himself he no no that's what i'm saying but i'm saying let's say you're trying to play the blackout game you're just curious right mm -hmm. maybe you played the blackout game with your buddies and you're like you know what that was kind of weird a weird feeling i kind of want to experience that again i mean again he's a 14 year old boy i mean we do some dumb stuff mm -hmm. you know so he's sitting there and he's like okay i want to try this by myself then he goes home and they're like what the hell's on your neck right yeah. and then he's like well what happened was i was attacked and that's what was happening. And then what he did was, well, I'll make up these notes because then if I make up these notes, then that covers my tracks even more. Yeah. The first attack is weird because the police do go to that spot in the woods and they find the bicycle, they find the inner tube and they find the bag. Everything that Bill said would be there was there. Mm -hmm. Why would he leave his bike? Maybe he came to and, and panicked and, and freaked out and just went home on foot. And like you said, now he's at home. He's got to he's got to explain for his whereabouts. He's got to explain why he doesn't have his bike. Um, now we also have this situation where he's coming home from his paper route. He's unaccounted for for five or six hours. He comes home and he looks like he's been attacked as far as the choking goes. Um, and now he's got to explain to his parents why they have to take him to the hospital. I just don't see any sign of abduction or struggle or attack other than this choking thing. The rumors of ab abduction really kind of came after. Mm -hmm. And then we have the volume. Why was there volume in his system? That's strange to me too, but I, I don't think that anybody would have made him or forced him to take volume and then kill him. Mm -hmm. Th that doesn't make any sense to me. I, he, he would have died or been close to death pretty quickly after having been quote unquote abducted from his front yard. I don't know how much time it would take volume to get into his system, but I think this is something that he took on his own. I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that was, we could find no reason that it was prescribed to him, but we're talking about 1979 and 1980. Is there a possibility that when he was seeking medical attention for the second attack, that a doctor, he, he received a shot that night, according to his sister. Is there a chance that a doctor said, you know what, here's some of these, here's some of these pills. And when you're feeling weird, Bill, or not feeling good about things, you can take one of these and it'll help you relax. Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility he could have received those from an actual doctor or hospital, but not actually have been prescribed the medicine. We don't have Bill's parents around anymore to verify how he would have received that value. Nor could I find anything from his parents 
discussing the volume in the newspapers at the time. Well, you were telling me earlier about an interesting point about the second attack. Yeah, the, the one thing about the second attack, remember he states that he was choked from behind with a rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two white dudes, teenagers, early 20s, they jump out of this car, they jump him. And the way that he makes this, this sound and the way that it sounds in the newspaper is that he was along his newspaper route. These are homes that are close together that he was attacked there and basically choked and left for dead, thrown into some bushes or underneath a tree. I wonder, you know, if we could get a better, a better report of that actual attack, because had he been abducted and taken elsewhere, that would make more sense to me because I cannot believe that in this neighborhood, he, that, that a boy, that a 14 year old boy just lie there lifeless almost for five and a half, six hours on the side of a sidewalk or in somebody's front yard or side yard. And nobody discovers him during this five and a half, six hour time period. And he eventually wakes up and walks himself home. Well, and I think your theory makes a lot of sense. Uh, I would just argue that there was items found, uh, with, uh, Bill's body and they, you know, they were able to pull DNA off these items. Yeah. Okay. So there's the items found with him. There's, there's one item in particular that, uh, the family points to, and this was a knife was found in the area of where bill was found. Mm -hmm. And their thought is it's possible that this knife was used to abduct bill. That's why he was silent during the abduction. Um, and that whoever killed bill would have thrown him there into the ditch and then discarded of the knife, uh, before leaving the scene. Well, and there's possibly DNA on the scarf as well. Correct. So I've, I've seen several reports that in late 2013 and early 2014, they were going to test these items as early as 2000, I believe 2012. Okay. Um, I've heard conflicting results on these tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard some reports that the items still to this date have never been tested. That's the main rumor that uh, I hear as well. And then the other rumor is that these items were tested and they weren't able to come up with any new leads based off of their findings on these items. I wonder, uh, as far as the knife goes, let's describe this knife. It was described by Kathleen, his Bill's sister as basically a knife that you would find in somebody's kitchen. It had a wooden handle Um, It was not a knife that the family recognized to be from their home. Mm -hmm. Um, It also could simply just be trash. You know, this was along the the railroad tracks. Uh, He was found, you know, there were beer bottles in the area. There were car parts. Possible that this could just be trash. Well, and one of the other rumors about the DNA is that there was not enough to sample, that they would have this destroyed. And it's funny to me because think about how many cases that we cover and we learn Week by week, we learned something. Mm-hmm. And what did we learn last week? Uh, was it PCR? Yes. So, you know, they're, you know, you're reading about this case and they go, well, we don't have enough DNA evidence to, to test it. We're afraid we'll contaminate it. And then you go, wait, but PCR is like basically a photocopier. So mm-hmm. why aren't we implementing this in this case? And is, if it's about money, I think the thing, maybe not the knife, because like you said, it's a very possible very good possibility that this knife was just thrown out as trash or just left there. You know, some mm-hmm. kids were playing uh, with their mom's kitchen knife and just was like, ah, just leave it here. Littering. That's, Don't do it. That's what it comes down to. A bunch of litterers. Pick up your pick up your trash. You, you piece of trash. Um, <laughs> no, so I I agree with you. There's there's those items there that to me are sketchy. 
But I think the thing here is if we can pull DNA evidence off of his neck, his scarf, anything that they could get that was connected to him, not on those surroundings, but connected mm -hmm. to him, if they're able to test that, if they're not, but they're able to duplicate it with PCR, then do that and then test it. Now, is there somebody else's DNA other than Bill's? Right. Because that, if it's just Bill's, then your theory makes the most sense. But if there's somebody else's, it, the, the suspect or the, you know, or the killers, not the suspects, the killers went to his high school. He knew them through high school. They were upper classmates. The thing that I lean towards your theory about is uh, why would you, when you went to pick on an individual, wouldn't you punch him? Mm -hmm. hold them down, do something. I mean, it seems like strangling the individual is, you know, it's not the first thing you would do when attacking somebody. Yeah. Or possibly that you'd strangle them with your hand. You know, you'd be in a fist fighter or, or, or maybe they're not even fighting back, but you'd strangle with your hand before you would use a bag with a, uh, you know, a tire tube. And if they have the tire tube, can, can we, you know, what kind of a tire tube did did Bill have? Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know. I mean, it leans that way. The re the only reason why I lean that way because I would assume that if somebody's bullying him, that there would be a punch or something thrown first. Bill would have a black eye, you know, not just marks around his neck. Yeah, and okay, let's. I'm going to go back to the DNA real quick before we get before I get into the bullying. But the DNA that we're that you're talking about that was found on his scarf. Um, was reported as bodily, some kind of bodily fluid, right? Um, Which could have been the puke. That's what I'm getting at. We all, we now know that that Bill vomited at some point, uh, and it very well could have been Bill Bill's vomit on that that scarf. Um, so I question I question that, and I'm like like you said, let's test that stuff, and if it's Bill's, we got to move on from this thing. What's irresponsible here is that. I really feel that we're 30 some years later and I, I think there's enough to question if this is a homicide or not. I would love for law enforcement to come out and say definitively one way or the other. It remains technically a homicide because it's on the books as such. Uh, that's what his sister believes it is as well. And so does Bob and his, and I believe mm -hmm. his family always believed that he was killed and that he was murdered. Um, I don't mean to go against his family at all. Um, I simply just want answers exactly like they do regarding the bullying. Uh, you mentioned something, you know, that, that this would have had to been upperclassmen. I, I agree with you 100% on that. The other thing is if these people were not just, they weren't just upperclassmen. If it, if he was in fact murdered, it wasn't just somebody that had access to his school that attended his school. Mm -hmm. This was also somebody that fit into that neighborhood that didn't seem out of place in that neighborhood because there's nobody other than bill on three separate attacks to say, Hey, I saw this guy or these guys or these group of people driving around in this aqua colored older car that, that he said was probably a Ford Falcon or something that looked like a Ford Falcon. Do yourself a favor, Google an older model uh, Aqua Ford Falcon. That is not, that could not have been a common car back in 1979, 1980, mm -hmm. not the pictures that I saw. This is a car that in my opinion would have stood out. This is a car in my opinion that had they gone to the school, they probably could have asked about 50 people and said, you know who drives one of those? So-and-so drives one of those. Yeah. Uh, it would have been an easy thing to come up with. The other thing regarding the bullying is, when interviewing his girlfriend and, and his friend that received these threatening notes as well, 
Captain, don't you believe, you know, both of us, you know, in a high school setting, don't you believe that if you receive some kind of threatening note, you might have some clue who put that in your locker? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think so. But or, or at least out of the three of you, you might have some speculation as to who did it. Yeah. I think, you know, I think you could come up with somebody going, oh, so-and-so doesn't like me or so-and-so is mad that I'm dating this girl or so-and-so doesn't well, I, like my buddy or started a fight with my buddy, I think you would have a small list of people that would be likely suspects in the notes themselves. Well, I, but I also take back what I was saying before, you know, when I was saying the bullies would p- probably punch him in the face. If you think about stuff like, um, uh, what's that show? Um, Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. You know, they, these upperclassmen would jump out of the car. All they're doing is holding down an individual and, and then spanking them. Mm-hmm. I say that only what I, what I mean by that that's a horrible thing to do to anybody but what I mean only by that is they're not punching them right to get the so this could have been just some sick thing they're they're doing like a form of hazing almost right but this could be some kind of sick form of hazing mm-hmm. and so yeah these these two individuals for whatever reason pick Bill and then they go after him and they grab him and then they just will tie this around his head and then we'll will run off. Mm-hmm. But and the then, but the threatening letters, the the, no, the notes that he's getting don't sound like some kind of taunting as towards hazing. You mm-hmm. know, I get you are next. Yeah, that sounds like, oh, you know, remember we choked that one kid? Well, now we're going to we're going to choke you in our little hazing weird hazing thing that we do, but mm-hmm. one of the notes says blood will spill. That sounds like murder. That sounds like some kind of severe attack. The other one stating something like Bill has 3 months left. Uh, spend them wisely or something like that. You know, this again, like I said, there's so many things that you brought up that I think are super valid points. And then the other side of me goes, but the people that were closer to this case than me, me and you could, you know, ever be as his siblings mm-hmm. and for them to come out and say, look, this doesn't, you know, it's a 14 year old boy that, you know, maybe was just, you know, had this weird phase for a while where he was making himself pass out. That's a very good possibility there is a good possibility that he was just being harassed by somebody and that these individuals, for whatever reason, maybe it just started out as a haze and they're like, Oh, well this, you know, this actually went too far. Now we got to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good possibility too. And I, but I think, you know what, I know what his sister's doing is she has a Facebook page. They've posted a lot of information uh, about that school. And now what's great about like web sleuthers is they can actually go online and pull up the yearbook for Westland High School, mm-hmm. um, Westland High School in Columbus, Ohio, and and look through uh, and look through these pages. Yeah, and and if he was murdered, to me, hundred percent, I believe you'd find those uh, those individuals in that book. Well, I think a big problem with this case is Aileen Tope, the one who started writing these other letters that were not connected to anything. I think that. I think that the police probably had their suspicions as to whether this was an actual homicide or not. Mm-hmm. And I think once the, once those letters started, well, there was a big scare in that neighborhood by people receiving these letters and even by people that weren't receiving these, na- these letters. And so the police had a job. They had a duty to that community to go in there and determine who's writing these letters because mm-hmm. everybody in the neighborhood immediately thinks these are coming from whoever killed poor Bill Comings. And I think that once they were already confused about their own investigation, 
They get involved in this letter writing investigation. Mm -hmm. And I think the police for a long time, for those few months that those letters are being received, I think they thought that if they could find the author of those letters, that they would find the killer of Bill. And when then that, that didn't work out, when that turned out not to be Bill's killer, I think maybe they reverted back to their original thought of this might not be a homicide. Right. And what I mean where I think a big interruption is Aileen Tope is I think that those months would have been better spent. They definitely they definitely did a lot of work on this case. They did a lot of work trying to figure out who that letter writer was. Why well, They could that. have spent those hours and those days going back and actually clearing up within a year, within months of mm-hmm. his death, determining the actual cause of death and, and maybe getting it right. Well, and I wish, you know, there was more than one polygraph test. Yeah. Because, I, because I don't know how much that proves. I mean, we, I, I we, don't, we just, I actually don't leave. I don't, I don't look to that polygraph for anything really, because I don't, I think, I think giving a polygraph to a 14 year old mm-hmm. boy or girl, I think is strange. I think, especially if he was in fact attacked, you could make a child feel like they're guilty of something that they had no, had nothing to do with. Yeah. And just by putting him in the chair and submitting him to that test, he could come off as deceitful just because he's now in a situation and in a setting where he feels you made him feel like he's done something wrong. And I would love to know if that DNA was actually tested. If so, I would love to know what the results are. I know people are going to send us things that they've seen, but like we've said, we've heard both sides of the coin mm-hmm. that yes, that they have been done. Nothing came back or that they've not been done. I worry that the sheriff's department this many years later believes that it's not actually a homicide and they might not be technically working the case. If that's, if that in fact is their stance on it, I would love for them to say, you know what? Comines family, let's sit down. Let's review the boxes of evidence that we have. Let's review this together because they are owed some answers. They are owed some answers in this case and they're owed closure. Yeah. Even even if it's just law enforcement coming out and stating, yes, we are on your side, we believe this was a homicide, or no, we still think that this was an accidental death. And I, and all the people that write suicide or even the autoerotic asphyxiation stuff, I think that's a little too, I think that's a little irresponsible. I think that this, in my opinion, I lean towards accidental death here, and I think that's the right term, I and I welcome I welcome anybody else's thoughts on it because there's I my when I sit down and look at this thing, Captain, my opinion changes daily mm-hmm. as to whether he was killed or whether this was an accidental death. Yeah, well, again, I think sometimes people throw out these theories and they have no evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think look, I but I do think, like I said before, there's enough information online and that maybe that the Webb's Luther community could help out in some way the true crime community in some way possibly could dive into this case a little bit and maybe uncover some new leads. That's the hope of his sister. The other thing too is, you know, like we said, our, you know, what we kind of lean towards or what kind of makes the most sense was this was some kind of accidental, um, death. The other thing too, is if we do have these letters, why can't we pull DNA off the letters that were written? Right. So, and if it's, if it is, if it's about funding, well, it's this simple, you know, the, the siblings can contact us, can contact true crime garage and we'll, we'll pull the, uh, the true crime community together and we'll get this tested ourselves if it's about financials. So, um, I, I you know, it'd be great for that community and for the family to get some closure on this case.
Yes, and I truly hope that Kathleen and Bob, uh, Bill's brother and sister, receive the answers and the information that they need and deserve. Uh, his parents deserved that information and, and that closure as well. Unfortunately, they did not get it. You can follow, you can actually follow Bill Comines and Bill Comines family at Twitter. Um, so if anybody's looking for updates on the case, on hopefully, yeah. hopefully there are updates. Um, you can do that at Bill Comines. Well, it's a really interesting case. One I never heard of, uh, till this week and it was a Columbus case. So, uh, do we have a recommended reading for this week? We do. This week, we are recommending the Pierre Hotel Affair. This is a true story of one of the most famous unsolved heists in American history. In 1972, someone, well, I should say some ones, stole $28 million worth of jewels from New York City's Pierre Hotel. You know, this would make a great movie, Captain. Anyway, a group of men arrived at the hotel dressed in tuxedos. They very quickly attacked the security guards and took hotel staff and guests hostage. Uh, When they finally left the hotel, they departed with $28 million worth of jewels and they left in limousines. If you would like to, if you like a good heist or you like a good whodunit, check out the Pierre hotel affair. And you can do that by going to truecrimegarage.com and click on the recommended page. Uh, Team Nick shirts are about to sell out and, and team captain, uh, tank tops are about to sell out as well, and I don't know when when the next time we'll print these. I have a couple um, different designs up my sleeve that we'll be rolling out in the next week or so. All right, until next week, everybody be good, be kind, and don't litter. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.